Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an unusual podcast. I, I had Yasha Monk on You all might remember Yasha Monk from a previous discussion we had. He's a a lecturer at Harvard, a columnist at Slate. He's a host of the Good Fight podcast. His book, The People vs. Democracy, will be published in March of 2018. And he's he's an expert on on democratic deconsolidation. He's an expert on how democracies that seem to be running well, that seem to be on firm, pluralistic, liberal footing, erode, lose their way, become something less than a democracy. He has been an important voice in, in the Trump era, keeping an eye not just on policy, but on illiberal policy, trying to look at what Trump is doing that might offend people or upset people and separate it from what is actually dangerous for democratic institutions. We had this conversation the the day after the health care vote where the Senate health bill died overnight. We had it on a day when President Trump gave a very chilling speech in which he argued for more police brutality when they're arresting suspects, people who are presumed innocent, by the way. And then while we were talking Reince Priebus, the chief of staff for the White House, the former chief of staff for the White House, was fired. He was fired in a tweet that didn't mention his name, where Donald Trump simply said, I have a new chief of staff, John Kelly, the head of the Department of Homeland Security. So you'll hear in this podcast, this news comes as Yash and I are talking and and we react to it in in real time. Um, It was surprising and a little bit unnerving to me how much it fits in the themes we were already dealing with. But it it was an interesting ride nevertheless. Uh, before we get into it, a couple quick plugs. One for I Think You're Interesting, the podcast by Todd Vanderwerf, uh, where he interviews fascinating figures in culture. He's got on Michaela Watkins from Casual for, for a conversation about how you tell stories about coastal elites at this very fractured, polarized time. It's a fascinating discussion. A plug for Worldly, our foreign policy podcast. Uh, they have a great discussion this week on what happens when no one is actually running foreign policy. That is where we are really right now, and, and it's a dangerous place to be. But all that said... This is an unnerving conversation. It it was unnerving when I had it. Uh, I wanted to talk to Yasha because I've become more concerned about these things in recent weeks, watching Trump's treatment of Sessions, watching his concern and fear of of Mueller, and watching the direction his White House seems to be going in generally. And I left it uh, yet more concerned. So here is Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. So as I remember, when we last talked and, and we talked about Trump and a liberalism and the, the initial fears of authoritarianism in his government, I think both of us had the feeling that it had not been as bad as some of the more concerned predictions had made it out to be. And my feeling is that since our conversation, it has gotten worse while at the same time being comic in a way that has somewhat obscured how much worse it has gotten. I'm curious if I ask you that question now, how does where we are compare to where you feared we would be? How do you answer it now? I mean, I think that, you know, I was a little unclear as to where we are then and I'm a little unclear as to where we are now because there's, you know, some good signs of institutions standing up to Donald Trump, of him 
talking up a storm but not doing all that much. And at the same time, there are all of these really, really worrying signs, both about you know what he has done in certain cases like firing James Comey, but also just the range of illiberal rhetoric that he engages in. I mean, every time uh, I look at the newspaper or I look on Twitter, there's something new. Today alone, there's been two worrying things. What were your two things today? So today, I mean, first calling basically for abolishing the uh, filibuster in the morning on Twitter. And then the speech he was just giving in Brentwood, I think, in front of police officers where where I just saw a short clip. One of the things he was saying is, you know, when you arrest them, you always put your hand, you know, on the back of the head to make sure they don't get hurt when you're pushing them into the car. You know, I don't want you to be too nice to them. You can take the hand away. I mean, it was just, you know, an implied way of saying rough them up when you're arresting them, which is which is really striking. The thing that has been on my mind this week I'm actually a filibuster opponent, so I'm more sympathetic to people who who want to eliminate the filibuster, though, though I take your point. But the thing that has been on my mind this week is how Trump has been talking about and treating Jeff Sessions. Be- because I think there's a way of reading the public humiliation he is dragging his attorney general through as a kind of darkly comic management saga. But what I see happening is Trump saying, the attorney general is there to serve me. The attorney general is there to protect me. The fact that I hired an attorney general who is not able to protect me from the rule of law is somehow unfair to me. And he should resign out of disgrace. And that view of what the federal government is there to do, what his cabinet members are there to do, what his um, what civil servants are there to do, that strikes me as scarier because it raises very, very, very troubling questions about how Trump is going to be filling these spots in the future, which kinds of people will come into them and what kinds of assurances he's going to demand of them in private before they come up for Senate confirmation. So the view we settled on, I think, in the last conversation was that Trump is an authoritarian by instinct rather than by ideology. But when you look at somebody like Kaczynski in Poland, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, by the time that they came into office, they really had a pretty developed view that liberal democracy was not for them. But there was something wrong with that political system, that it didn't allow enough decision-making power to the center, that it was far too respectful of the rights of various people, and that the goal was to transform the political system in such a way as to concentrate power in their own hands and create an illiberal democracy, a hierarchical democracy with different terms for it, but essentially the same kind of thing. Now, Trump doesn't, doesn't seem to have that in those kind of ideological terms. He doesn't have a vision of where he wants to transform the political system, what he wants to get it to be. But the concern that we had a couple of months ago was that he also is unwilling to recognize legitimate constraints on his authority. And that as he would bump against obstacles, he would never say, well, you know, these obstacles are just part of democracy. I got to figure out how to do what I want to do while respect of them. Instead, he's going to say, no, let's let's blow up this obstacle. This is outrageous. I'm a president. I should be allowed to do whatever I want. How can there be this obstacle? And you've seen that this week with the different kinds of things. We've seen it with attacking the attorney general explicitly for the fact that Essentially, he won't stop the Russia investigation. And you also see it with a filibuster. Now, I, I agree with you that there's some reasons to reduce the number of veto powers in American politics. Um, perhaps there's a good principled reasons in certain circumstances to get rid of a filibuster. But what's happened here is that Trump thinks it's because of a filibuster that healthcare reform didn't pass, which is untrue, but anyway. And so in that case, let's just blow it up. And and my fear is that there's no inbuilt limit to that. But he's willing to tell cops, just rough people up. Let's not worry about the obstacles. And that eventually he might be willing to say, if a judge rules against me, well, let's blow up that obstacle too. Why should I listen to him? I think the part of this that when I think about very direct ways it's going to corrode the system, I think about Thomas Ray, the nominee to take over as FBI director. One thing we've been seeing recently is Donald Trump has been, he fired James Comey, of course. He's been attacking Andrew McCabe, the acting FBI director, because his wife previously ran as a Democrat for statewide office in Virginia, 
uh, or for state office in Virginia and got money from a pack associated with the Democratic governor, right? So he's trying to discredit the acting FBI director. And so now you've got this guy in the background, Thomas Ray, and, and Ray is a reasonably credentialed guy. He ran criminal justice enforcement, I think it was, for George W. Bush. But because we know with such certainty that Donald Trump's test, the test Comey failed, the test McCabe has failed, and the test that he wants a future FBI director to pass is personal loyalty to Donald Trump. How can we look at somebody Donald Trump has nominated, Donald Trump has chosen, and say, okay, we trust that character? I mean, when you, when you can't trust the president at all to make these decisions in a way that is respectful of the institutions that constrain him, you end up in a, in a dangerous place very quickly. I'm not a fan of Jeff Sessions. If Donald Trump wants to fire Jeff Sessions for normal reasons, I'd be perfectly fine with it. But if all he's going to do is systematically go through the government and eliminate people who are not sufficiently loyal to him, and then quietly, as, as a condition of future employment, anybody who replaces him needs to pledge that loyalty, that seems very, very, very corrosive. Because even if they didn't pledge that loyalty, we don't know. If Thomas Ray is nominated and confirmed, if he's confirmed for FBI director, I will not trust anything he does. And it's not his fault. I just, how can I possibly know that the condition of getting that job was not a pledge of personal loyalty to Donald Trump? Look, I mean, so two things. First of all, it's difficult to see how somebody can take that job in these circumstances if they think they're really going to go against Trump in a consistent manner. Perhaps they are doing it out of love for the republic and they think, look, he made the mistake of nominating me. He somehow expects that I'm going to be loyal. Um, I'm not going to be loyal. I'm going to do my job as a upstanding you know, public servant. And if that means getting attacked on Twitter every day, if that means uh, getting fired two months from now, that's fine. I'm willing to pay that price. Um, there certainly could be admirable people like that. And maybe that's what Thomas Ray's mindset is. But Trump had a pretty easy task here, right? He had to find one human being in the United States who looked credentialed enough not to be a crazy pick for the FBI, who looked like, to the outside, like they seem to be a professional. There's no particular reason to suspect that they might actually be a crony or a personal loyalist. And then testing their loyalty. And as you're saying, you know, he could have conversations with those people. He could have gone through 20 of those possibilities and tried to suss out which of those 20 men and women was most likely to be personally loyal to him. And so structurally, I agree with you, it's really difficult to trust anybody he picks. And it creates a wider problem, which is that you know, you should have real concerns of conscience if you're sitting in Congress today about confirming anybody who the president puts forward. I want to put a pin in Congress because to me, that's the institution that has been, that has underperformed this era the worst and, and that worries yes. me the most. But but before we go there, I want to talk just for another minute about Sessions. And this is literature you're going to know better than I do. But there's a lot of political science literature and comparative international literature about the way more authoritarian regimes work. And one way they work is by sending signals about what kinds of people will be successful working in them, making people do somewhat insane things, making them endure insane things, making them say crazy things in public. Something that I see happening in the Trump administration with the way that they are publicly destroying people who they feel cross them inside the administration, right? A Jeff Sessions, a Reince Priebus. What it seems to me to be doing is that the only people, it seems to me to be a filtering mechanism for how they're staffing their government. At this point, the only people who would dare come into government, a little bit to what you were just saying, with the exception of maybe some very unusual personalities, are those who are willing to make the trade of being a Trump loyalist for this kind of power. And there are people like that, but it's hard to figure out which of them are which. And one way you do that is you make it clear that if you're not that kind of person, serving in the Trump administration is going to be an unending hell for you that will end in public national humiliation. And so then those more credentialed and also more competent people don't serve. So the quality of our government administration degrades, but also the people who do serve are there to serve Donald Trump, not there to serve the country, not there to serve uh, the best interests of the people. And and that that feels to me like a quality, not of the kind of government we've tried to run in this country in the last in, in, in recent decades or even more than that, but of much weaker, more corrupted regimes. 
I think that's right. Trump is deliberately creating disincentives for honorable people to serve in government or stay in government, incentives for, frankly, dishonorable lowlifes to to stay on in government or to enter government, and incentives for people who are in government to act in the most unthinkingly, personally loyal way without regard to the more impersonal responsibilities and duties of the office. Um, one way of making sure that the people who end up in government are going to be unthinkingly loyal to you is to make clear to people that if you're going to enter government, you will get destroyed unless you're unthinkingly loyal. And so the only people who are willing to come and join you are like that. And it's the same for the government. I mean, you know, a couple of months ago, I could see people telling themselves you know what, I don't like this president, but it's my duty as an American to serve. And 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 I can serve his policy agenda. And so far as it's legitimate, I can, I can do a good job, but I will not pervert the basic integrity of the institutions. And at this point, it's getting more and more difficult for people to make that call. And that allows Trump to clear out bigger and bigger swaths of the federal bureaucracy until he has politicized it in an extreme way. And yes, absolutely, that is what authoritarian populists everywhere from Poland to Turkey are doing and have done over the last years. And the result is a weaponized state that doesn't do what it's supposed to do, but serves as the personal tool of the strongman. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. When Donald Trump came into office, he came in and he did bring in some weird cronies, people like Michael Flynn, Jared Kushner. Uh, there, there are people who came in with Trump who their real only loyalty was to Trump. They would never have been picked for a high-level job in another Republican administration. But he was also able to attract a number of people who would have taken those kinds of jobs in another administration. Jim Mattis, H.R. Uh, McMaster's after Michael Flynn left. Rex Tillerson, who was a little bit of an unusual pick, but a, a CEO of ExxonMobil, was a, a well-known, well-credentialed guy. The word now is that all of those people are incredibly unhappy. And so one thing that that worries me about what he's doing with Sessions, I mean, there's been a lot of scuttlebutt that Tillerson might resign soon. He's very upset. He's very, and also they all look at this and think this could become me. I don't want to deal with this. So it, it becomes a weeding out situation where folks like McMaster's and Tillerson are probably not going to have long tenures in the administration. Even relatively normal players like uh, Priebus look like they're probably on their way out. And then by the same token, as you said, we are no longer, as far as I can tell, in this scenario 
where reasonable people would take a job in the administration. We were in that scenario a couple months ago, even as weird as Trump seemed, but we're not there now. There's been a change in the kind of person who seems like they're likely to survive in the Trump administration, who seems like they're likely to work in the Trump administration. And just my fear is that you run that forward two years, just going through the natural, much less the accelerated turnover of a high pressure uh, presidential uh, administration. And you're going to end up quietly with a White House just filled with hacks and loyalists, which, again, it didn't seem like that was a path we were on as recently as three months ago. Yeah, and I want to zoom out on that point a little bit, because, you know, at each stage of Donald Trump's rise, we were tempted to assume that the forces of stability and sanity would win out over the forces of instability and insanity, you know, at the next moment. So when Trump was up in the polls in the primaries, we said, well, look, you know, people like to sort of say that they're going to vote for an extreme candidate in the primaries, and then in the end, the moderate candidate wins. Well, he won the primary. When he was up for the general election, people said, well, obviously, there's no way he can become president. And he did. When he became president, people thought, well, you look, I mean, clearly now he'll professionalize and, you know, some of his shtick from the campaign is going to be pared down and it'll turn out that he actually governs perhaps as a relatively orthodox president. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. He hired some pretty extreme people into the White House, like Steve Bannon. And at that point, nearly all of the observers said, well, you know what, actually, when you look back through presidential administrations, often there's a couple of unusual people in there at the beginning. They don't know how government works. In the end, the people who know how to fight the bureaucratic game uh, and the bureaucratic tug of war end up sort of flushing them out. Six months from now, people like Reince Priebus are still going to be in the White House and people like Steve Bannon, just wait for it. They're going to be on the way out. Well, we're now about six months in and it turns out to be exactly the opposite. It turns out that all of the unusual and extreme people seem to uh, have a pretty firm place within that universe and seem to have retained Trump's liking and Trump's support. Uh, whereas all of the more orthodox people, whether it is, you know, Reigns Priebus on the sort of staff side or people like McMaster and Tillerson uh, in the cabinet, um, seem to be on the way out. And and that is a worrying thing about where this presidency is headed. I think we just have to finally stop assuming that the the forces of stasis are going to to win out at each stage, or that finally is sort of there's just something inherent about the system that'll right itself, and we can just wait for that moment to kick in because it hasn't kicked in in a very long time. So, I think there are two directions to go in this, but but one I want to go quickly is to talk about Mueller for a second. You and I had a conversation very early in this administration, or maybe even before Trump had had taken office, and you persuaded me that. Trump's illiberal instincts, the, 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 the tricky thing about them was that they would be catalyzed by constraints, that he was not coming in with a plan to take over the government and make it more authoritarian. But one thing that was dangerous was that he would become more, more dangerous and more illiberal as he found himself constrained by, by institutions. Mueller seems to me to be catalyzing Trump's illiberalism. He is scaring Trump so much the scope of his inquiry, the fact that it's beginning to roll up his children so Trump is feeling an existential threat around his family, the fact that Mueller is able to get into Trump's tax returns, his business dealings. There's clearly things there that Trump does not want out. We don't know if they're about Russia or not, but we know that he is not. Um, he does not want to be forthcoming with them. And he, Mueller seems to me to be driving him into a kind of frenzy. He's furious at Jeff Sessions just because Jeff Sessions can't protect him. He's furious at Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, because Rosenstein appointed Mueller. Um, he's looking for possible pardon powers. He's looking for ways to discredit the Mueller investigation, having his people look for oppo on Mueller's people. This is where Trump seems to me to get, to go from being instinctually a bit of liberal, saying things that maybe unnerve you, to actually looking for ways to act in, a, in an illiberal, above the rule of law fashion. He feels himself under real threat. He feels that threat to be unfair. And it isn't clear to me that he will stop at much to try to protect himself and his family from it. 
Yeah, so I think that when you think through that, there are sort of three possible scenarios, right? The first is that actually Trump in the end has some self-control, that he tries to scare Miller into pursuing a less extreme investigation or that he tries to fire him but accepts it when Congress reappoints him, that there's some limit to Trump's willingness to really undermine the most basic norms of a system, which in the long run are, are, are not just norms, but are needed to sustain the institutions themselves. I don't see any evidence for that. It's possible. We can't guarantee that it's not the case. But I so far haven't seen any evidence of that possibility. The second possibility is that you wind up in a moment of real constitutional crisis. So Trump keeps attacking these liberal institutions, these basic democratic norms. He fires Miller, and the congressional Republicans finally decide this is the moment where they have to stand up for the basic separation of powers, for their institutions, and uh, you get this moment of showdown. Now, I think if that showdown happens early enough and if there is enough unity among the other branches of government against the overstep from Trump's presidency, they have a decent chance of winning. But there's two dangers here. The first being that there's never going to be the one clear moment. We've already seen that what looks like a bright red line as we're driving towards it starts to look like an orange or a yellow or a green line once we look at it through the rearview mirror. I mean, I think the firing of James Comey is one example of that. And then the second danger is that, you know, perhaps by the time that Congress actually stands up and we actually get the constitutional crisis, it's too late. It's not today. It's not in two months. It's in two years. And Trump has 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 expanded his power in such a way that uh, it's difficult to stop him. And so that leaves a third possibility, which is that the checks and balances turn out to be a sort of house of cards that falls in on itself because the Constitution gives us, the American people, and gives different institutions within the American Republic the ability, the tools to to defend itself, to defend the Constitution. It can't defend itself. It needs people to act on its behalf. And at each point when we cross a line that two years ago we would have said would be a bright red line, we decide that actually perhaps this is not the bright red line. Congressional Republicans say, you know, it's pretty risky standing up to him now. Perhaps let's wait for a better moment. And the moment when they actually stand up to him never comes. And I am, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I don't want to say that that is the most likely scenario. I, I don't think it is. But I take that scenario more and more seriously as a real possibility. So here, here's where I have come to be on this. And it's a pretty uncomfortable place. You have done all this work. It's how we originally began talking about democratic deconsolidation. And, and in America, that work is focused on the idea that you are seeing in public opinion polling a lot less support for foundational premises and institutions of democracy, things you need to protect, things you need to have. One thing that I think we're seeing, both in the reaction of Republicans in Congress to Trump and the reaction of Republican voters to Trump, is that there is no line. It is not obvious to me there is anything Donald Trump could do that would lose him the support of a majority of the Republican conference, save maybe raise taxes on rich people. But when, <laughs> it, when it comes to undermining democracy, when it comes to firing an FBI director, when it comes to threatening to fire your attorney general as another effort to shut down the same investigation, there's no serious pushback that you find, not, not in a real way. And... Similarly, among Republican voters, he has maintained the support of most of them. Not all, and it's not that there's been no softening of his support, but we are now well past uh, a place that I think if you described it to people before it happened, they would have said, oh, we'll never stand for that. And in each case, uh, it's been very easy for particularly Republican members of Congress to lightly say, oh, he's new at this. You know, we wish he hadn't done that. We think this is a distraction from the real issues, but just try to move on and do their own thing. That, to me, is, of all these pieces, the one that has been the most unnerving. And, and the reason is, is that it, it, it goes beyond Trump. Maybe Trump will 
maybe he will have an organized illiberal effort that needs to be stopped, or maybe he won't. But it seems entirely possible that somebody someday will. And I think what we're seeing is our system will be perfectly vulnerable to it because it actually isn't the case that our defenses of our norms, institutions, and, and civic uh, guardrails is deeply rooted. It's opportunistic, and it can be overturned so long as people see themselves as having partisan or policy incentives to ignore breaches when they happen. So a few thoughts on this. Um, first, there is now this big academic debate, which has sort of helped to get started about the degree to which people retain a strong commitment to the most basic principles of democracy and the degree to which they have a strong preference to live in a democracy or not. And a lot of that debate turns on how we interpret different questions. When people say in surveys like the World Value Survey, yeah, I would like to have a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress and elections. You know, you can read that as being incredibly concerning, or you can read that as people saying, yeah, of course, we want a strong leader. They don't listen too closely to the question. It doesn't really mean anything. Well, look, we now have in power a strongman leader who has trod over the most basic democratic institutions time and again and seems to be accelerating those attacks. And he's not incredibly popular. I mean, most Americans dislike him. But when you look at the 538 polling average, rather than at sort of the cherry-picked polls we like to look at at Twitter, he is very close to 40% of approval. Close to 40% of Americans still think that this person whose closest associates clearly were willing to collude with Russia, explicitly so, who is attacking one basic democratic principle after another, nearly 40% of Americans still think, yeah, that guy is doing a great job. So, the concern we should have about how shallow the commitment to basic democratic principles is, I think, really big. And and that leads into the second point we were making about where's the red line going to come? If you told people a year ago, would congressional Republicans really disown a president whose closest advisor, whose advisors were in a meeting arranged by his son, the agenda of which on paper, black and white, was the Russian government wants to help you. And the answer was, I'm loving it. That would not have seemed likely. If you had talked about firing the director of the FBI, egging on the attorney general to prosecute your political opponent, Hillary Clinton, all of those things. I mean, people said, no, those are red lines. If, if a president crosses those, that's when checks and balances come into play. And they haven't. So we have to update our mental model about how we're going to respond to future infractions. What happens? And this, is, and this is an important thing. You know, one of the things that makes people think that there's a red line is, is a distinction between norms and institutions. And I tend to distinguish between those and so on. But at a certain level, our institutions are norms. So think about the Supreme Court, right? I became an American citizen a few months ago and um, one of the questions I was asked at my citizenship test was how many Supreme Court justices are there? Now, this was before Gorsuch was confirmed. So it was actually a difficult question to answer. Obviously, the immigration official was looking for the answer nine Supreme Court justices, which is what you learn in civics and what's sort of written in the leaflet they give you. But actually, it doesn't say in the U.S. Constitution that there's nine Supreme Court justices. And at the time that I was asked the question, there was eight. Well, what happens if Trump nominates 20 Supreme Court justices and really tries to take control of the institution? If we don't stand up to the red lines now, how do we know that we're going to stand up to those red lines one or two or four or six years from now? This is a place where the, the public's opinions on this stuff seem, seem meaningful to me. There's been uh, an Economist YouGov poll that's been going around. You tweeted it out as where I actually first saw it that said 45% to 20% Republicans favor having courts, quote, shut down news media outlets for biased or inaccurate stories. Now, would they really want to see that in practice? I mean, I, I think sometimes these polls can overstate that, right? If they really saw the court trying to shut down the New York Times because Donald Trump didn't like a story, would people stand for it? I, I, I doubt it. But there's conceptually something here that that is unnerving. And 
it seems to me that what we are learning is that tribalism is much more powerful than our democratic norms. Because I, I do think it's worth trying to inhabit the other mindset here for a minute. If you're Donald Trump or you're a, a Trump supporter, it's not that you're looking at this the way you and I are and say, look at these terrible norms violations. You're looking at this and saying, look at the worst political witch hunt in history. Look at how unfair all this is. All these institutions arrayed against my presidency or against my president. And even if I think that is analytically wrong, even if I think it's factually wrong, that is how they see it. I don't I don't doubt that Trump, for all that they lied repeatedly about the Russia meeting, they certainly appear to be acting very guilty, that their feeling of persecution, their belief that the other side did worse, their feeling that this is their enemies out to get them. I don't doubt that that feeling is sincere. I don't doubt that in their mind, they're the good guys. Yeah. And w- once you're there uh, and, you know, cocooning in a weird media sphere and, you know, get, getting the information you prefer, well, then all of a sudden this stuff looks very different. And, and that to me is actually one of the dynamics of all this that I, I found a little chilling. The more intense the moment gets, the more provoked traditionally nonpartisan or transpartisan institutions are to say, hey, something unusual is happening here. The more that the charges become extreme because the reality that they're describing was extreme, the more it actually creates space and feelings of persecution among those on the other side of it. They're seeing these institutions act in abnormal ways, go further, call the president a liar in ways they would never have done to a previous president. And if you don't buy the premises of the argument, then what you see is establishment institutions that are rising up in a way that is very, very aberrant to destroy a political movement that you hold dear. And so all of a sudden, much more aggressive measures, countermeasures, make complete sense. Yeah. And, and, and one way of thinking about that is that nobody is ever going to say, or few people are going to say, yes, I want to destroy democracy, or yes, I want to destroy the American constitution. But because their partisan identity is stronger than some of those commitments, because they have grown disillusioned with the functioning of existing institutions, because they don't recognize blatant, clear violations of democratic norms and institutions when they're happening, as long as their team is perpetrating those, they're they're going to go along with them, right? And 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 I really think it's helpful here to remember. I think when we think about, you know, how democracies went to die at other historical moments in other societies, we often imagine this slightly caricatural picture of it, where you know the guy who destroys the democratic system really says, "Hey, I'm an evil fascist." And I want to destroy everything that's good in the system. And, you know, he's as blatant about it as possible. You know, when the vote in parliament happens, that gives him plenty of potential powers. The people who are voting in favor know that this is the moment at which we're destroying the system. The people who are voting against know that this is the moment when we're being heroic and we're going to go off to, uh, you know, jail the next day. But that's not normally how democracies eroded. They eroded slowly without the one really obvious red line. Often with one opportunity to vote a strong man out, once they'd already sort of, you know, undermined some of the institutions, they didn't have quite free and fair elections, but the opposition still had a chance to vote them out. They failed at that. And over time, over five, six, seven years, they really destroyed the, the, the last remnants of a democratic system. And often it took even longer than that. When you look at the Roman Republic, there was moments of, of anger and of fever that chipped away at the institutions. And then it calmed itself a little bit. And somebody, a little more sane, came into power for, for, for a few years, for a few decades. But the underlying sources of this anger and, and the partisanship and um, the mutual distrust um, erupted again. And you got an even more extreme strongman the next time around. And over the course of a number of decades, 
uh, the political system really destroyed itself. And that's one of the fears I have. I mean, I, I do think at this point it's worth taking seriously the fear that Donald Trump might undermine the rule of law and the independence of institutions in this country in such a way that America goes from being a liberal democracy to a flawed democracy to a competitive authoritarian regime. There's different terms for it in the literature, but something along those lines. That is that is possible. But I'm even more worried that this is the first step in a series of steps that is going to just destroy the American Republic. So I am, for once, more optimistic than somebody on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but the the way that I see this question is dark, but not quite that dark. And 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 I would put it this way. I don't think Donald Trump himself stands much chance, although who knows, I could prove wrong, of truly undermining our institutions. What I think we're seeing here is that our institutions, particularly our institutions that have partisan valences to them, like Congress, are much more corroded than we thought they were. I think we're seeing the American people have much lower of a bar for what is a minimum level of decent conduct than we had hoped. I think we're seeing that we are much more vulnerable than we thought. And Trump is a beneficiary of that, but he's not the creator of that. By the same token, I do think that Trump is normalizing and creating space for behaviors that are very, very, very unsettling. And while I do not know that he will be the one to make them into a kind of a program, I think that future administrations will look at the Trump uh, example and the Trump playbook and a savvier group of people using some of these same plays, understanding the way you can just use tribalism to overwhelm truth, understanding the ways in which if you are dangling in front of a political party, a long-held ideological objective, they will stay with you on virtually anything else you do. How someone savvier can look at this uh, in the future and say, you know what? The old rules of politics were wrong. I can do a lot more than I thought I could. Uh, there is a lot more space inside the system to amass power, to act on my own behalf, to kneecap my enemies than I believed. Um, I worry a lot about what the Trump administration uh, and then future administrations will do on voting rights. You know, as they kind of go around the country, I think it was Chris Kobach recently said, we'll never know if Donald Trump really lost the popular vote. No, we know. But that is being used as uh, a foundation. They will try pretty clearly in 2020 to disenfranchise people with. And who knows, it might work. And so I don't know about the death of the American Republic. I think the American Republic is, you know, reasonably strong. But it's not that hard to imagine just the guardrails on what politicians can and can't do, on how they can and cannot amass power, really changing fast. And us ending up with a country that, you know, it's not that it's unrecognizable, but it's seriously diminished in terms of its democratic uh, fairness to what we expected we'd have. So so I'm not sure, I'm struggling to see on what point you're more optimistic than I am. Possibly um, I'm just in, using in sense, calmer language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, I mean, everything you said seems right to me. And, and, you know, it's helpful to get away from this binary democracy or not democracy, right? I mean, one way of thinking about a democracy is that you provide an even playing field between the government and the opposition. That in a close to perfect way, when the next election comes around, when it gets to be 2020, the president has a good chance of getting reelected. But you know what? The opposition also has a good chance of getting elected. They have free access to the media. Their voters can turn out to the polls. Their supporters aren't being intimidated in ways that, you know, make it risky for them to actually engage in politics. Private companies haven't been bought off to spread distorting messages about them, say they own a TV studio and so on, right? And then sort of the straight out, the opposite of that, the straight out dictatorship is, you know, all the other parties that are banned, there's just no way for the opposition to run. Now, there's a huge continuum 
between those two things. And that's what Steve Levitsky and Lucien Wei call sort of competitive authoritarian regimes, in which you do have elections, in which the opposition does have a chance of winning. It's just very far from an even chance. And I mean, to some degree, we're already there when you think about the disgraceful sort of way in which the American voting system works, uh, when you think about the fact that, you know, if you live a, in an urban overwhelmingly African-American neighborhood, it's likely that you have to stay in line to vote for much, much, much longer than if you're in um, in a part of a country that's more likely to vote for Republicans, right? It's, it's already not an exactly even playing field, but it's close enough that I think without hesitation, I would call the system today a democracy. Now, you know, the possibilities of changing that over the next two or three years, but even more so over the next 20 or 30 years, if, as you're saying, somebody more competent, more disciplined uh, comes into office and wants to emulate parts of Trump's playbook, but in a more strategic manner and at a time in which partisan divisions might be even deeper than they are now, in which um, some of the corrosive effects of economic stagnation and of tribalism and of residential sorting have gone even deeper than they do now. Uh, I think there's a real possibility that, that, that we verge into the kind of territory that a country like Hungary now occupies. I don't disagree with too much of that, to be honest. Uh, but the one thing I really want to punch in in this podcast is that I think what has changed in my thinking since last time we talked and certainly since this all began is that my thinking now is less about Trump and more about us. I, again, I initially approached some of your research with skepticism. I looked at that polling, you know, about what was it, a fifth of people would be happy with a military dictatorship. And I, I think some of these polls, it's hard to say what people really mean when they answer them. But Agreed. what I do think we've seen here is a system that is prepared to accept challenges to its norms, challenges to its standards, and levels of illiberalism and and um, breach that we did not believe was true before. And, and to take Trump almost entirely out of it. And, and it's funny because I really don't even know what role he played in this, how much he was a sort of liberalizing force in making Mitch McConnell and so on and, and colleagues feel a little bit more unconstrained. But the way the healthcare fight just went, and now the, the bill ended up dying by a single vote. Uh, we're talking the night after, the day after the Republican healthcare bill died in the Senate. But it was the most illiberal process we have seen in recent memory for a major piece of legislation. Completely secret hearings run entirely through a process that circumvented the filibuster. Uh, the members of the Republican Party who were involved in it talked about it with shame, said they felt bad about how it was going. No effort at any point to bipartisanship. Extremely unpopular bill. I mean, everything Republicans said Democrats did during the Affordable Care Act, which wasn't even true. <laughs> They really did. And then they took it much, much, much further. And I would have told you that you would not have been able to have that kind of process in, in the Senate. And the reason I would have said it was that we have all these institutions in there and all these players who they would not want it to happen. The head of the Senate Finance Committee, Orrin Hatch, he would want to write the health care bill. The head of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, Lamar Alexander, he would want to write the bill. We have processes. It's not that you can never circumvent regular order, but people are going to let you do it like this. Like they want to be involved. We've given them all this power. And then it turned out they didn't care. It turned out that everything they said about how they wanted the process to run and how upset they were about what Democrats did before was all just bullshit. And they would go as fast, as secretly, as far as they could. I mean, I remember how much Republicans freaked out over what they called the Cornhusker kickback, this deal with Nebraska's Ben Nelson. This whole bill was built on secret deals. And so to me, even when you take Trump a little bit out of the equation, there is just a willingness to accept things, widening the boundaries of what is okay in American politics. What Senator McConnell did with Merrick Garland. I understand the partisan logic. I understand the ideological logic, but it was new. And that newness, that kind of the, the these new breaches of 
institutional functioning, they seem to me to be accelerating in this era. And nobody really seems to care. Uh, it's not changing anything as far as I can tell. I agree. So one of the things that I find weird, and I do this myself, right? I don't want to call people out on it because I, I, I do it myself, is that, you know, a year ago, we thought these hundred norms are inviolable. And anybody who crosses them, I mean, A, people wouldn't cross them. You know, they just wouldn't dare. And B, if they did, there would be, you know, hell to pay for it. And now we've seen 50 of those norms just go out of a window. And yet we look at the remaining 50 ones and we say, well, surely nobody would cross those. And if they did, there would be hell to pay for it. Because surely we as a people are committed to those. Well, I don't know. It turned out that we weren't as committed to the first 50 as we had assumed and hoped. So I'm starting to be less and less sure about the next 50. This is a different way of putting your wider point, right? Which which is that this is not about Trump himself, right? I mean, A, because he's frankly not all that good at what he's doing. Otherwise, the damage would be even bigger. But B, because in a healthy system in which people have deep commitment to these norms, in which other branches of government do jealously guard their independence, don't go along with those kinds of things, we wouldn't be where we are. All right. So, so while we were talking here, um, news just came along that Reince Priebus, who's come up a number of times in this conversation, actually has been axed as chief of staff. And he's being replaced by John Kelly, the, the general who runs the Homeland Security Department, um, who's not, has no political experience be, beyond running Homeland Security, who's been running one of the more illiberal parts of Trump's government, where they've been really, really pushing on how they treat people crossing the border, uh, and now this is going to be the guy running the administration. This is the guy Trump turns to as the White House becomes less and less effective. And by the way, on the same day that he gave a pretty chilling speech, we were talking about this earlier, about how police should rough people up more and we're all in incredible danger from immigrant gangs. I mean, this feels to me like part of the whole thing that we're talking about, part of the, the denormalization of his own White House and also our own inability to even track it in a way where we can sustain outrage anymore. I'm trying to reach for some levity here desperately. Um, you know, there's been all of these different conversations about what the right cinematographic uh, metaphor is for the Trump administration, right? I mean, is it um, arrested development or is it uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia? You know, is Donald Trump Jr. more like Fredo or is he more like, you know, sunny? Well, you know, in The Godfather, they build a wartime cabinet when different families go to war with each other. And there was some reporting where that's the language that the Trump administration has used in, in briefings with some reporters, that they want to build a wartime cabinet. Um, and obviously, we're not at war with another nation. The idea of war that they are invoking here is not a national emergency government because you're fighting World War II. It is going to war with critics of the administration and going to war with the institutions that are constraining the government and the president. And this sure looks like the wartime cabinet now has its uh, four-star general. So one of the things that this seems to me to be, to do or to be part of, is Trump just seems to have a lot more comfort with people who have a, a sense of real authority around them, people who can just demand that others do what they want done, than he does with personality types that are more conciliatory. I mean, th this goes a little bit to his own instincts, but I don't think he liked Reince Priebus in part because Reince Priebus was a creature of politics. He was a creature who compromised, who tried to build coalitions, who tried to smooth things over. I don't know Kelly personally, but Kelly comes out of a very different, much more hierarchical culture than that. And it's to say nothing negative about the military culture to say that it worries me a little bit that Trump seems so much more comfortable in genuine command and control scenarios, so upset that his job is not like that of a general who can just order his troops to do whatever, 
than like a traditional politician who has experience and has been tempered over years learning that you have to make compromise, that you are constrained by certain institutional forces, that you have to work with groups that don't agree with you. For Trump to cocoon himself uh, in this other culture as he is more and more frustrated by the political system that he's supposed to be in some ways a leader of, it doesn't look great. No, and it's exactly the thing we've been talking about, right? So it's not like Trump came in and the day he was elected, he thought to himself, let me put together a cabinet of generals where everybody is just used to ruling by command and by order all of the time um, because because that's what we need. We need to get rid of, you know, normal democratic constraints and just make it um, an unprecedentedly hierarchical organization. But as he's experienced the frustrations of the normal course of government, as he's experienced the the fact that you need to get buy-in from different people, that you need to get buy-in from different institutions, he has increasingly grown frustrated with and said, no, I want to rule like a CEO does. And I want people around me who are used to commanding others. And in response to these frustrations, he has now appointed a general as his chief of staff. And and so, you know, I'm not worried because I have a strong view on this particular person. I'm not worried because I distrust, you know, the commitment of the American military to, to democratic rule. I am worried because it shows the degree to which Trump is insistent and adamant on ruling by imperial order, that that he thinks everything else is illegitimate, that of course he should have the authority and the power to command, and he's going to surround himself with the kinds of people who, like him, uh, have the life experience of telling people what to do, and there's no question, there's no possible resistance, there's a yes, sir. Well, and this has been why he's it has been widely reported that the reason he's often upset with Priebus is he blames Priebus for things not getting done. He he thinks the constraints would not be there if he just had a more effective chief of staff. And so what he's done is take somebody who's operating in a very different context, right? The Homeland Security Department is a very large mishmash of agencies, but they work in a much more hierarchical manner. So he looks at John Kelly. John Kelly's not having these kinds of problems running, say, the border guards. Um, and he says, okay, I bet if I put you here, I'm not going to have these problems. But these problems are not going to go away. Uh, so then the question becomes, how does Trump react when they don't go away? And then how do, again, to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, how do we react when he reacts to the fact that they don't go away? I don't know. I mean, perhaps they will go away, right? So there's a famous story about Dwight Eisenhower, and I forget who it is who is supposed to say this about him. Poor guy, he'll come into office and he'll think that he can command people like he did in the army. Um, and he'll shout his commands and nothing will happen. But the point about Eisenhower is that he had enough of an understanding of the nature of civilian government that when he commanded and nothing happened, he may have been a little frustrated. He said, all right, well, fine, this works differently and I'll learn how to rule within the system. And he ended up being quite a successful president for that reason, right? If you command and nothing happens... And then you fire everybody who ensured that nothing would happen because what you were doing was, in fact, unconstitutional and put a bunch of yes-men from the military in who also think that the chain of command should just be going down and carrying out without question what you're told. Well, then perhaps eventually you've re-engineered the system of government such that it is more like the army and you can command and things happen. And if a court says... I'm sorry you can't do that, well, you do it anyway. I mean, I just don't think that it's inconceivable that we'll get to this point. You, you had a piece at Slate where you said that you think we're headed for a constitutional crisis, and you weren't super specific on what that would mean or how it would work. But when I think of how we could get into a, a bad place, and, and I think there's a good chance we don't get into a very bad place, but, but when I think of how we could, I imagine Trump running through a couple cycles of people Kelly might turn out to be a perfectly good chief of staff. I don't want to overly prejudge him here. Uh, but running through a couple 
cycles of people till he ends up with the people who back up his worst instincts, people who tell him to fight whenever he is um, up against the wall, people who also, like him, believe the institutions are illegitimate. And then in a moment when it would really be politically or personally painful to bow before a constraint, he instead tries to provoke a crisis over it, tries to run over it. And this just to me seems to be when you add up some of the dynamics we're talking about here, where you see it going, when you add up a lot of turnover of people who do respect the constraints, Trump's clear signal that if you're not a a true loyalist to him, you're not going to like work in this administration and you shouldn't try. His own personality, the fact that the constraints begin to bite harder and harder as you run a worse and worse administration and get more and more behind on your agenda. Um, All of that, it creates over time a crisis point. You have Mueller happening in the background. You have the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee running its investigation. Uh, You have press uh, that is reporting things maybe Trump doesn't like, leaks happening that Trump doesn't like. His new communications director said he wanted to find all the leakers and kill them. Now, I'm not saying Scaramucci is going to actually go around with a knife, but it it doesn't get hard to see it. And I know, like, I I know there are people who listen to this and it just, we all sound crazy. (laughs) But this is crazy. Like, we are living in a crazy, aberrant time. And most days, I think that my danger, my analytical danger is not that I'm overestimating the dangers of this moment, but that because I have a internal tendency towards equilibrium because I've only lived in America when it's been pretty stable. It is too hard for me to imagine things actually going irreversibly politically wrong. And that I underestimate the tail risk here, just like people underestimated the risk of the financial crisis and other things. Like we feel to me like we're in the political version of something very much like a once in a generation financial crisis, seeing the weaknesses of the system all stack on each other. And it wouldn't take much to to create a fracture. So let me be clear here, right? Because I think you're right that we've been talking about the pessimistic scenario uh, throughout this conversation and with a lot of urgency. I want to acknowledge that it's perfectly possible to make a case for the other side of this and that I can in no way exclude that the other, that the opposite of what we've been saying will transpire. Right, I think it's possible that congressional Republicans will finally find the courage of what does seem to be the convictions of a good number of them, at least, in the Senate, and say, we are going to stop playing ball with president in any way. We now see him as a danger to the republic, as a danger to the uh, independence of our institution, and we are going to act more as senators than as Republicans, more as Americans than as partisans. And we'll turn against him in a serious way. We will not confirm anybody he nominates because we can't trust anybody he nominates at this point for the reasons that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. We will ensure that the special counsel is insulated from any attempts to fire him. We will fight tooth and nail for every part of uh, the, the Constitution. It's not unimaginable that eventually Trump's approval ratings drop from 40% to 30% and 25%. It's not unimaginable that there's a huge rout of House Republicans in the 2018 election and uh, Democrats start impeachment proceedings once they're in control of that chamber. You can tell a story where all of this turns out fine and then you look at it five years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now and say, well, surely it was inevitable that Trump was going to fail. I cannot exclude that's what's going to happen. It might very well happen. But by the same token, it seems to me that you can tell a story whereby things go wrong in an even deeper way than we've seen so far. And in retrospect, you tell the same story of inevitability, saying, well, by this time, it was already clear there was some form of collusion or at least attempted collusion going on over Russians. It was already clear that he had attacked the independence of the FBI, the independence of the courts, the independence of the media, that he was hiring the most unsavory characters. And yet Congress hadn't turned against him in a radical way. And yet he retained the loyalty of a large majority of Republican voters and of 40% of the overall population. So, of course, nothing 
stopped him when he then went on to do X and Y and Z. So what I want to impress on myself as much as anybody else, because I also reach for equilibrium and say, I've also only lived normal times. So I also want to say, well, surely somehow it'll all turn out fine, right? I just think that we know less about how our political system works. We know less about how stable democracy is when people are as uh, dissatisfied with it as they have become. We know less about you know, how democracy operates, you know, when there's been a stagnation of living standards for many decades rather than a very rapid increase in people's living standards. We just don't know. We can't easily take 250 years of democratic stability in America and project them onto the next 250 years. Because there's also lots of examples of republics and democracies that were pretty stable for a certain period of time. And when something changed and they ceased being stable. So, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know anything. But what strikes me always in this conversation and the public debate about it is that the starting point is, well, surely we all know exactly what's going to happen. And the thing that's going to happen is that in the end, somehow it'll be fine. I just don't think we know. Yasha Monk, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you to Yasha for being on the podcast. Thank you to all of you for listening to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Bert Pinkerton, the Ezra Klein shows on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back next week. 